Hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med, a premier resource of evidence-based information and education for students, practitioners, and the public. Today I'm talking to Dr. Heather Wall, a fellowship-trained obstetrician-gynecologist in pelvic pain and minimally invasive surgery, and she runs a menopause clinic for Prometica Healthcare System in Toledo, Ohio, in the department of OBGYN. Today, uh, Heather and I just wanted to talk uh, about the Menopause Society, formerly known as the North American Menopause Society, but we wanted to talk about their annual meeting that just took place recently. And we, we attended this virtually and really enjoyed this and thought this was really important to share with you because as a sexual medicine podcast, um, the studies uh, show that, um, that the group of women with the highest reported female sexual dysfunction are, are those in the midlife. And there's so much that was covered in this uh, annual meeting that will impact your patients uh, their, and their sexual health who are in the midlife. So uh, thank you, Heather, for joining me. I appreciate Thanks your- Thanks for being, having me. <laughs> and uh, I, I want to first look at the, uh, there was a, um, a plenary symposium called the Precision Medicine in Oncology or Precision Oncology and Medicine. And I just wanted to go over briefly some of the uh, things that were covered. Certainly up until this point, you know, medicine is just, you got one screen and it's one screen for all. And, and that whole paradigm is changing. And in, in the, the time of uh, precision, medica uh, precision medicine, we're looking for the right screening test um, and the right treatment for each individual and not a population. So um, as one person put it, we want to get out of using a sledgehammer to precision cellular therapies for, for treating people today. And so- And thank God. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> I think that the, the time has come um, for, for personalized medicine, especially in oncology care. And I mean, really in any care, um, but but definitely so in in oncology care with especially what with um, what we're learning from research. And I really appreciated the remarks about you know really trying to get away from screening, which just tells you that you have cancer, to either real early screening or prevention. Mm -hmm. And and I you know I, what what were your feelings about that? I just thought that was I, the work that's going on and the the cell-free DNA looking for uh, pieces of uh, genetic material to get a really early diagnosis going. Um, and then uh, things we can do for prevention. We're looking at risk factors and whatnot. I, I just thought this was such an important discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, this a lot of this talk kind of highlighted the fact that, um, you know, when we talk about screening, like you've mentioned, we really only have screening for, you know, a, a certain few cancer types, right? Exactly. Breast cancer screening through the mammogram, 
colorectal screening through, you know, whether that's Cologuard or um, a colonoscopy, you know, there's, a, there's different types of screening options for, for colon cancer. Um, but when it comes to the really advanced types of cancers that present like ovarian cancer, we don't have screening for ovarian cancer, right? There's a lot of um, cancers that present late in stage because we don't have good screening. And I think, you know, using precision oncology, personalized medicine, kind of, I know that term is used interchangeably, I think is going to be the, the, um, how medicine is going to evolve, um, and is already evolving. And I think, you know, if you think about it, we have been using similar tests in obstetrics, right? You know, right. when yeah. we have our, um, Easy. you know, cell-free DNA that we use to, uh, like that maternity 21 test, right. Where we can, you know, look at dr draw mom's blood and you, we know that, um, there's fetal DNA in the blood and that can kind of tell us if, um, a woman is at risk of trisomy 21 or down syndrome, um, um, and, you know, a couple different other types of trisomy. So I, I do think, you know, we use um, this somewhat in obstetrics, but to see this um, utilized in other aspects of medicine um, for, you know, early detection, right, of cancer. Um, and um, I think, especially as they had mentioned in those truly high risk patients, right, um, yeah. that we haven't really had the, the greatest um, options available to this point for, for patients who are, you know, truly high risk, um, and how this is going to change um, treatments moving forward. Because if we can detect cancers, even sooner, right, and get treatment started, you know, sooner, we were going to be, you know, significantly impacting quality of life, right. And, mm -hmm. and in addition to that, um, you know, the, the in, impacting uh, quality of life, but just improvement of the treatment overall, right. Um, so I, I think it's really, really exciting in the world of oncology right now. Yeah, getting away from that sledgehammer. I was really particularly excited about just the discussion around, you know, instead of the five, six cancers that you mentioned, that they're talking about look at panels that look at over 50 mm -hmm. uh, different possible cancers and ways they could not only discover, but just really be able to find these uh, cancers and start treatment real early on. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you're right. It's just a, a thrilling uh, time in medicine. And um... I mean, I think the biggest hurdle, and they kind of alluded to this, you know, during their talk is what's it going to look like from an insurance coverage yes. perspective, yes. right? Yes. And if that's not covered by insurance, then potentially what is the out-of-pocket cost going to be? And, you know, those types of things. And I think, you know, Anytime there is obviously something new in medicine, that's always a fear that we as the um, uh, practitioners have, right? You know, what, yes, we have these, you know, great options for patients, but from an insurance perspective and out of pocket costs uh, from a patient perspective, what, what does that look like? And, you know, how can we make sure that our patients are getting, you know, the care that they need, um, and also balancing their their financial um, setbacks. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's 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 always huge. The the whole equality thing. Mm -hmm. I think another uh, area that they talked about was the um, well, just the menopause management of uh, 
the symptoms, uh, uh, managing the symptoms of menopause. And mm-hmm. one of the talks really focused on uh, complex medical conditions, including heart disease. And we're seeing, such, you know, more heart disease in, it's the number one killer, we know that, mm-hmm. but we're seeing it in younger and younger people. Mm-hmm. And we know that things like preeclampsia is, you know, is it's a red flag telling that individual she's probably got, you know, heart disease in her future. And, you know, utilizing, uh, again, risk models to try and figure out if we really can give even some of these young women hormone therapy. I was just blown away by a lot yeah. of these yeah. talks, um, to be honest. And, and I do think that it gives us another um, step in our process in counseling patients about whether or not they are considered good candidates for yes. menopausal hormone therapy. Um, and I think that, you know, we we have kind of our list of absolute contraindications, but I think that, you know, utilizing from a cardiac standpoint, you know, um, assessing a cardiac risk, because, you know, I think that this is often something that um, is not talked about, right? Patients are like, well, but isn't, isn't hormone therapy heart protective? Well, no, no, no. Like when we talk about the, the, the heart protective benefits, we're really talking about patients who have like premature ovarian sufficiency or surgical right. menopause and starting those women on hormone replacement therapy, because yeah. we know the benefits of estrogen long-term from a heart protective benefit. That is not the same thing as starting a menopausal woman on menopausal hormone therapy, right? And I know that we're going to talk about that a little bit later, like the whole, you know, like disinformation, misinformation. But I think, you know, again, it's a really important thing to kind of keep in mind that, you know, when we are talking to a um, a menopausal woman about menopausal hormone therapy and in the past, you know, it's just like, oh, well if you've had a heart attack, if you have known, you know, coronary artery disease, then that's, that's probably, you're not the best candidate, but even in those patients that haven't had a heart attack, have, don't have known like coronary artery disease, you know, going through like a step process to kind of look more at their, um, medical history to develop, you know, that's the scoring system, right. To determine what, what their risk is and whether or not they would be a good candidate for menopausal hormone therapy, if they're in, a, in an intermediate risk or, or a high risk, right? So um, I think that that's going to add another piece on, you know, how we counsel patients now about menopausal hormone therapy. Absolutely. I think, you know, we learned even at prior um, uh, menopause annual meetings, the importance of uh, having patients work with their primary care physicians in managing their cholesterol levels. You know, I think that that was yet again brought up in this year's um, meeting that, you know, unfortunately, women are not treated the same as men when it comes to give like giving um, or prescribing statin therapy, right? And women, we like, as we learned, um, benefit from statin therapy, just like men benefit from statin therapy. Um, And so, you know, that I felt like came up a lot, you know, that maybe um, uh, we should be kind of 
um, at the forefront of working with patients and kind of telling them the importance of, you know, working with their primary care physician um, or, you know, primary care practitioner on um, the importance of um, discussing statin therapy, right? Yeah. And, and I, I thought it was very sobering to see finally some hardcore data that we've always talked about women that have the worst hot flashes that wake them up at night, that this could be linked to things like increased risk of heart or yep, increased absolutely. risk of, of even dementia. Mm-hmm. And, and now that we've got, I mean, cold, hard data that really links those two, yeah. I, I really sat and thought that really it's, we're getting to the place where, I mean, if you got really nasty menopause symptoms, you need to see a menopause doctor. You need to see somebody who's really trained and understands that, um, you know, hot flashes are just not something you, you shrug off. And we still see even in our own town, um, you know, practitioners saying, oh, you'll just get through it. And, oh my gosh, I mean, this could be heralding issues that we need to talk to people about. And so, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and again, just like getting through it is not, um, you know, that, that makes it seem like something that's, you know, going to go away in a month or two. And, and we know that for especially women who experience really, you know, bothersome vasomotor symptoms, as you have mentioned, those women probably have like the higher risk of cardiovascular disease and, and the higher risk of dementia. And, you know, they may not be the best candidates for menopausal hormone therapy, right. but we do have really great non-hormonal prescription FDA approved options. And so when you do the, the health assessment and look at a woman's, a woman's cardiovascular risk, are they going to be a better candidate for one of those, you know, FDA approved non-hormonal options where, cause we still want to make sure that we're managing symptoms, right. But right. we, that we're doing it in the safest way possible. And then we, we we see these women can get even uh, a cardiac workup and, and the calcium uh, tests on the heart that, you know, we, we can see if we can find uh, early signs of this, that they can get worked up and get help and not wait until they really get sick from it. So, you yeah. know, not only their symptoms, but, you know, let's just let's check them out. And yes. so I thought this was fantastic. Um, another uh, talk that I thought was really important was uh, the sexual health talk, which we have to talk about because we're a sexual of health course. you know, <laughs> podcast here. But I really appreciated uh, the talk on orgasm, uh, the, the orgasm disorder, and just, you know, going through the physiology and all that stuff and talking about how you know, uh, sensitivity in that, in the area of the vulva and, and the clitoris can diminish over time. But I thought the discussion of the different types of uh, receptors in that area, especially the vibratory receptors, that it really underscored, you know, the need to to just be honest with people and say, you know, if somebody's older and saying, you know, my climax isn't that good 
to really uh, prescribe vibrators because Amen. it's a medical tool. <laughs> it is a medical tool. It's exactly. Not, it's not some kinky thing. It's, you know, there is physiology there. there it, yes, absolutely. And, so, and we need I, to I just, normalize it because absolutely. with our patients, because a lot of people still feel like, you know, it's, it's taboo to right. you, you know, like, like a sex toy or anything right. like that. But th I mean, we are, we are using this for a specific medical reason, right? And I think, you know, we know that most women are not able to orgasm um, through vaginal penetration alone. Most exactly. women need clitoral stimulation, exactly. right? And there are, you know, a, a percentage of women that are, you know, are never able to orgasm, which is okay, right? As long as that woman's okay with it, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that sex is any less enjoyable for women who are not able, you know, to orgasm. But if a woman, you know, was previously able to orgasm and is, you know, bothered by the fact that she's not able to orgasm anymore because of this like decreased sensation, you know, again, we know that use of vibrators to help target, especially at the clitoris, to target um, those nerve fibers um, can, can basically bring a woman's sex life to almost what it was before, if not to exactly what it was before. Um, but I think, you know, we have to normalize this as medical practitioners in talking to our patients about utilizing things like vibrators. Um, because if we're, if we act kind of weird and, and off put <laughs> about discussing these things, I mean, that's going to come across to our patients, obviously. Um, but then I think, you know, this is where it can sometimes be beneficial to utilize our colleagues, um, you know, our sexual health therapists to work yes. with, you know, um, the um, patient to work with, you know, the patient as well as her partner. Um, because I've definitely had some patients that are like, how am I going to talk to my partner about this? Right. That like, you know, um, they're okay, you know, kind of doing this on their own, but when it comes to having the discussion with their partner that they need to like bring this tool, um, into the bedroom when they're having intercourse that they, you know, they're concerned that their partner's going to think that they view them differently. Right. Yes, um, so that, exactly. that comes up a lot. I'm not enough. <laughs> I'm not exactly, exactly. Or are, are you still attracted to me? Like yeah. I've definitely had patients, you know, make that comment that their partner has said to them. Um, and it has nothing to do with attraction. It's just right. the fact that as right. we get older, our nerve sensitivity That's decreases. Right. It's, it's a thing. <laughs> and, then, and then just like you said, you know, uh, uh, with vaginal penetration by the man, very few women really get anything from that. Um, and so, it, you know, you just need that help. And Correct. so, uh, yeah, I just thought that was a, a wonderful uh, point that was made. And the other one, we, we, we had another talk in that uh, symposium about pelvic floor um, and, and the importance of that. And we cannot talk enough about um, our pelvic floor physical therapy uh, yes. friends and colleagues I know you have some excellent people you work with and it just, we just can't say enough. Uh, and we need more. I mean, that's the thing, right? And I, and that actually came up during, you know, the, the meeting as well that, you know, yes, we couldn't do what we do without amazing pelvic floor physical therapists. Um, and we need more pelvic floor physical therapists, right? Like this is something that even within the, the, 
PT community, right? Um, not every physical therapist may um, know that there is pelvic floor physical therapy that exists. And, and, and it's so important um, to kind of promote this type of physical therapy to get more providers because we have so many patients that um, can benefit um, from a pelvic floor physical therapist. And unfortunately, um, the wait lists are long be because we need more of them. Yeah, uh, it's they're just such a, a great part of our armamentarium. I want to go now to, to two of the talks that I think were just pivotal during the, the meeting that I just think is so important that we need to shout from the rooftops. And, and I think, uh, first of all, I don't even know which one to, to go after first because I just think they're so both so important. But I, I will talk about um, the the misinformation and disinformation symposia and just how incredibly important misinformation, of course, being you know, recently uh, on TV, we saw mm -hmm. a pr pr uh, promotion for something called HERS. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I looked them up and, you know, they've got everything that a woman could need and want for her sexual health. And and just there's no science at all. And and mm -hmm. when it says what's in the all the, the, the medicines, um, it it's all herbal things that there's just not much information on. And, you know, you get into uh, people thinking that they have something there when there's no no evidence base behind it. And then you have the disinformation where I know dang good and well that this doesn't work, but I just want your money. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, uh, the, the dictionary actually calls disinformation propaganda. <laughs> so, yeah. um but well, I mean, I, let's no, be let's be honest. Here. This is a billion dollar business, oh right? Oh. Billion dollar business. Um, and again, it's because we have so many women, perimenopausal, menopausal women that are dealing with symptoms that are like doing anything that they can, right, for relief. Um, and, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a huge, and it, this is not just, I mean, there's not just misinformation, disinformation about this topic, right? Like right. there's of a course. lot of things of in course. medicine that have misinformation yes. and just information, but this is like what the focus is of this, yeah, um, talk. This. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a billion dollar business and, um, you know, I have, plenty of patients that have come to me that, um, you know, already on supplements and, you know, try to, and to get my input on, on the supplements. And, you know, again, there are just hundreds out there. I, I can't, I, I can't possibly know all of the ingredients and in all of the supplements that are on the market. And, but you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of the, the supplements utilized, um, have no scientific evidence backing them. Um, you know, there are some supplements that, that have oh, yeah. undergone studies yes. and, we, and yes. we know that, and I, I don't want to like um, say any product names um, uh, on this podcast, but you know, that's why patients should come and see uh, a certified medical, uh, like menopause um, practitioner. But um, so there, there are some over-the-counter supplements that have had studies done uh, on them. Um, so if a patient I'm seeing, you know, does desire a non-hormonal um, over-the-counter supplement, I, we kind of have the, a conversation about um, one in particular. Um, that being said, you know, I think this is where we kind of have to have that conversation of 
um, menopausal hormone therapy is not the same thing as, as, um, hormone replacement therapy is not the same thing as, um, hormonal suppression, right? So, you know, um, and, and I think that sometimes, especially, um, is confusing when you're listening to other types, uh, you know, a podcast or you're Googling information, you know, so, uh, menopausal hormone therapy. I mean, it's in the title. It's for menopausal <laughs> women who are having symptoms. If we're dealing with a, a patient who is perimenopausal and having symptoms, that's when we really talk about hormonal suppression. That Those are two different things. Um, so that's, I think, a really Im important piece that sometimes is like um, misconstrued um, in just like going online and Googling information, right? Um I mean, what are some of the other things that you, I mean, uh, that you've kind of come across? Well, I, I just, um, you know, people always come in with um, ideas of of what should work and what um, what they don't want to be a part of because they've read information that, uh, you know, for instance, hormone therapy, uh, I've always been hit with, you know, it's going to cause breast cancer. And, and actually yeah. that is, we just know so much mm -hmm. about who shouldn't shouldn't get and and we yeah. risk stratify those people and say you're a great candidate for this and even women who've had hysterectomies putting them on estrogen alone we know actually reduces breast cancer so they come in with a lot of misinformation just just on that one thing well and even the fact like you know think um uh, vaginal estrogen, exactly. like localized vaginal estrogen, um, is like, they, you know, have been, um, kind of, I don't want to say taught, but have kind of been made to believe that, you know, localized vaginal estrogen is the same thing as menopausal hormone therapy. It yeah. is not yes. <laughs> localized yeah. vaginal estrogen is not systemic menopausal hormone therapy. Yeah. We're talking about two different things. Right. Um, yeah. So, that's where, you know, again, that's where taking the time to appropriately counsel patients is key. And, and, you know, it came up many times during this conference that obviously it's all, you know, time, 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 right? Like, you know, unfortunately, most, uh, most practitioners have short amount of time with each patient. And that's where sometimes, you know, working with somebody like a, a menopause um, specialist, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I do have a little bit more time in, in my new patient visit to, to spend time counseling, you know, patients, um, because that, so that we can kind of clear up some of this misinformation and disinformation. I, I just so important. I just uh, walking away from this, just so underscored. I mean, you know, if there's a pr problem with cancer, I, you, you send people to a cancer specialist. If there's a problem with you know, concerns about the heart, cardiology, and so on and so forth. And why not, you know, menopause uh, specialists? So I want to get the last couple minutes in um, on the keynote address that was given, uh, which was by uh, Ms. Uh, Susan Dominus, who is a, a New York Times reporter who uh, published, had published uh, an article in February of this year in the New York Times um, called Women Have Been Misled About Menopause. And it was, I mean, it, it got a standing ovation, which um, I can just tell you that rarely happens at, at 
at menopause meetings, but it it got a resounding uh, standing ovation. And she she really put it out there. And there are so many people that um, read this article now nationally, and it's being used by so many of us to give to patients to read about this because she's a reporter. But she did the research and had the people mm-hmm. at her disposal to answer questions. And I, th- I think what I really got from this is that um, practitioners uh, really have to know, either have a lot of information about menopause themselves or have their people that they can send uh, mm-hmm. people to because women are getting educated. And, mm-hmm. you know, menopause is coming of age. And, yes. And well, I, and again, counseling, 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 right? So um, if you don't have the time um, to provide counseling that, you know, women need um, regarding perimenopause, regarding menopause, then at least know who who you can send patients to um, for so that they can get um, more information. Again, preferably um, from a, a certified right. practitioner. Um, right. But, you know, um, I think that that's kind of a lot of what her article touched on is that, you know, um, in people that she interviewed, um, you know, a, a lot of what came up was that these women felt dismissed, right? Yeah. Um, that they were having symptoms, that they were made to feel like they were crazy, um, and they, they were dismissed. Um, and, you know, un- again, unfortunately, women are, their symptoms are often dismissed. And this is not just in menopause, right? We have other research studies that show that um, pain for women has been dismissed for many years, you know, oh if, um, yeah. right? So I mean, this is this is just another area in medicine where um, women's symptoms have been dismissed. Um, or again, they've been led to believe, oh, this won't last long. Everybody goes through it, kind of grin and bear it. Um, well, we're kind of over grinning and bearing it. Um, you know, again, especially when there are really good treatment options, whether those are hormonal treatment options, whether those are non-hormonal treatment options, right? We don't need to suffer in silence. And I think that was like the big thing at the end. Like we're, we're kind of done with this. And again, (laughs) yeah, we're over this and, you know, we deserve to, to, um, have our, um, symptoms validated and we deserve to discuss treatment options, um, that are not going to, uh, have higher risks than they do benefits. Right. So I think like, that's always a conversation that we have that, okay, you know, this is the treatment option that you'd be a good candidate for. And at this time, the benefits of this treatment option outweigh the risks, but this is something where, you know, we're going to, you know, check in, you know, however often it is with your practitioner to say, whether that's, you know, every six months, every, you know, every year, we're going to check in and we're going to have that conversation. Do the benefits of this still outweigh the risks, right? Um, And that's really important. She, she had mentioned that something like, you you know, when she was researching this, one of the people told her where, where the perimenopause is concerned, people will get over this, you know, uh, 
when you get through the perimenopause. And she said, just having that piece of information would have really, I could have done a lot with that, but I wasn't even taught that. So to your point, just somebody who knows and understands the process, just counseling and say, this is what, this is what it is, what to expect. Well, and separate from that, from the counseling that we provide is giving patients trusted resources, right? Because there are unfortunate, like fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to view it, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, But not everything that people come across is, is good. Uh, It's (laughs) it's not expert, uh, you know, put together information. Um, And so this is where another part of, you know, um, what I like to do in my visits is give patients trusted resources that they can go to after our visit, because I realize I, I, I give people a lot of information and it can be overwhelming. So giving those patients the resources that you're like, I, I this is a trustworthy website or this is a trustworthy handout, a document, whatever it is, um, you know, so that patients can take that, digest it a little bit more, and then hopefully start to disperse those really trusted resources to their friends, to their family, right? To, you know, because this is how we can, we can help other women is that get other women talking to other women about these issues as well. And I think that's kind of what this article highlighted is that, you know, um, for so long, even, you know, similar to kind of using vibrators to help with clitoral stimulation, you know, that's been, you know, sex toys are taboo. Menopause has been taboo, right? Like women just, oh, we don't, you know, and she highlighted that, you know, well, in, in the article, well, we don't talk about that. You know, that's just the change. Everybody goes through the change. Well, no, we have to talk about it. <laughs> um, like, because it's not going to get better. And, um, and unless we start talking about it. And I think that's kind of a, a key piece um, that was highlighted. I know we could go on talking for hours. Well, you know, I can talk to you for hours. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd love to do that. But I, I, uh, you know, I know our people listening uh, probably have full days too, but I I so appreciate you coming out and just, you know, just having this conversation about some of these highlights that were so important for people to hear. And again, I think the time has come. I think women are, are going to become aware of this and our, our, our friends, our colleagues, our practitioner friends that are, are listening, you, you, you got to get on board and you got to get educated or have friends who are. So. Um, Absolutely. And I would say, you know, to, you know, to the practitioners who are listening, I mean, if you have the ability to attend an annual menopause society mm-hmm. meeting, um, you should. I, I mean, you get to learn so much information and, and we have people from urology, oncology, you know, OBGYN, and there are all different types of practitioners, doctors, nurse practitioners, midwives, PAs, right. pelvic floor physical therapists, right? So there is 
any type of practitioner, any type of person that practices medicine that takes care of women, you know, look into coming to um, a meeting. You know, I know that next year's meeting, right? It says Chicago, Chicago, September yeah. 11th through the 14th of 2024. I mean, I, I highly, highly recommend um, attending um, a meeting, either in person or virtually, however you can do it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And Amen. I'm not paid to say that, by the way. <laughs> I, I'm not a paid spokesperson for yeah. the menopause society. Yeah. So, well, thank you again. And um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll pick on you again. So thanks again for your, for your input. So have a good one. Thanks. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Men. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.